The Gist is brought to you by Casper, the risk-free online retailer of premium mattresses. Try sleeping on an American-made Casper mattress for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. Right now, get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash the gist. It's Monday, October 27th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Okay, let me bring you up to speed on the Ebola quarantine situation. The quarantine nurse in New Jersey, Casey Hitchcock, was released when her symptoms abated, if she even had them, also when her legal team started to really gel. Now, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo was quick to call Craig Spencer, the doctor with Ebola, a hero before seeking to quarantine everyone else like him who tries to enter through an airport. New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, he doesn't want to be accused of hypocrisy. He says Nurse Hitchcock, she's a good person, but he doesn't want to speak to her. After all, she was a vector of, if not disease, then bumper-to-bumper traffic through the Raritan Toll Plaza. Christie, speaking in a zoo-like press availability, actually at a zoo in Florida, also compared her peak at being kept in a tent for three days to due to an airport. And so the fact is that I know she was upset and angry. She wanted to go home. Any of us have seen people who are traveling and they've been stopped, whether they're waiting for a plane or whatever they're doing, they get upset and angry. That's fine. Yeah, I don't know if you heard that. He said, just like anyone who's waiting for a plane, they get upset and angry. Whoa. So if I get the ACLU to take my case, that means I could have made my connection out of Hartsfield last week? Good to know. Apt analogy. People get upset when they travel. Gum costs $2.50 at the airport. The Cinnabon stints on frosting. You get detained in a makeshift tent with a porta potty and a sponge for three days and told it'll be three weeks. Oh, and did I mention the Cinnabon thing? Yeah, I think it's because they charge extra for the extra frosting. That's how they get you. On the show today, a Thomas Friedman metaphor goes off track. But first, a former Homeland Security advisor answers my questions, asking, how do we secure the homeland and feel robust about it? America has had, by my count, nine Ebola patients, 10 if you count nurse Casey Hickox. But why count Casey Hickox? She continuously tested negative for the virus, and she seems to have shown that fever only because she was flushed and stressed. I ate in the meatball shop where Craig Spencer, the New York Ebola doctor, ate. I saw Mayor de Blasio had a meatball there on Saturday. But in Dallas, the judge who essentially runs the county, his daughter's elementary school saw almost 100 absences the day after he went to Thomas Duncan's house, even though Ebola can't be spread by any way that would include his daughter going to an elementary school. So is that the difference between New York and Dallas? Maybe it's the difference of three weeks. Maybe it's the difference between a death and just a case. Well, joining me now is Stephen E. Flynn, former advisor to the Department of Homeland Security. He's a professor of political science and the director of the Center for Resilience Studies at Northeastern. And he wrote an article for Politico, All Ebola is Local. Thanks for joining us, Professor Flynn. I'm delighted to be with you. So what is it? What has been, in a word or or a sentence, what's the difference between New York and Dallas and their handling of Ebola? Well, it's largely how prepared the officials have been for the event. So for Dallas, clearly got caught by surprise. For New Yorkers, folks were kind of anticipating this would happen. And frankly, I think that top health officials and elected leaders got their act together. And that makes a big difference in terms of managing uh, the population's ex- expectations. You also write about the money involved. 
Yeah, that certainly does make a difference. Uh, you know, throughout our entire history as a country, it's been a huge part of the human condition that we face pandemics, uh, epidemics, and so forth. So in managing diseases, quarantines, and so forth is always part of a government's responsibility. And New York has the longest-standing public health department in the nation, and so it got well-practiced at it. It seems like over the last few years, other city states, we just haven't had the big scare, so people have been cutting back on a core capability that our governments must have. It's not the federal government that delivers public health. That's done at the local, county, or state level. Yeah, and New York spends, what was it, how many times, what was your well, multiplier? Well, the state itself spends six times the amount that Texas spends. And, you know, the whole nation overall per capita by state is just a little over $27, which is just a paltry amount. The worst is Missouri, which uh, whacked its budget over the last couple of years and is down to just under $6, or, you know, the cost of uh, coffee and a pastry, basically, to provide public health. It's, it's, it's really uh, a very dangerous state of affairs. I asked on this show, I asked an expert on um, panic, essentially. Why is it that with the Ebola case, there seems to be such fracturing and bickering? But if you look at, say, terrorism, there was coming together. You know, his theory was the enemy we know versus the faceless enemy. But why do you think the reactions to these two threats have been so different? There's a good bit of this that... The nature of a microbe is just so much more unfamiliar to many of us, and it seems to have that sense of being uh, we're powerless to deal with it. And, and as much as the terrorism issue can create similarly, there's a sense of that terror, acts of terror going to happen to somebody else. Uh, when it comes to sort of microbes uh, getting loose, we can all sort of sense that vulnerability. Uh, but, you know, the core here is that we, we've essentially, uh, you, you know, we're, we don't have a high enough public health IQ. We stop teaching this stuff. We, we don't give the people the basics about infectious diseases and how you manage these risks. And when people feel completely powerless to deal with what they see as a threat, that's when you get the panic reaction. The key is not just depriving people, talking to people about risk. You have to give them information about how you cope with those risks. Then we tend to get on with our lives. Yeah, I also think, I really do think that um, maybe it's the timing, it's just a few days to an election, but I really think that people have been trying, consciously trying to gain an advantage on the Ebola thing. I don't know what the motivation is. Maybe their their motivations are genuine, but there has been a trying to gain a political advantage with Ebola that we didn't see with terrorism. I wonder about that because I know, I've been studying up on you. You wrote an article in Foreign Affairs, America the Resilient. You wrote The Edge of Disaster, Rebuilding a Resilient Nation. You're, stu- you're the Center for Resilience. You're Mr. Resilience. I wonder if the idea of resilience isn't a little like the idea for herd immunity. Maybe you don't have to have 94% buy-in, but if you have a significant number of people who just refuse to buy into the notion of we're all in this together, then we're not all in this together. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that one of the key elements of this uh, effort of, to make a society more resilient is a bottom-up, all-inclusive kind of thing. And so, yeah, the polarizing trend we have here certainly doesn't help. And frankly, I've been found, find it appalling of the degree to which elected officials who should know better should certainly go after better information would essentially step out and fuel what seems to be uh, the fear factor that's going on here. You know, I, I wrote about very quickly in the piece here about an uh, outbreak of smallpox that happened in New York City in 1947. And what was amazing about that story in part was that the health commissioner who wrote it up afterwards 
singles out the media for doing such a good job at essentially getting information out to inform the public. But five million New Yorkers in just two weeks got immunized in 1947 in response to that. And the coming together and the willingness essentially to work together. We've done it before. I'm convinced we can do it again. Yeah, and we all say we want to, and there was New York Governor Andrew Cuomo kind of saying reassuring things, but then his policy the next day was to impose this quarantine at an airport. And look, I'm not going to just cast aspersions and say that the governors of New York and New Jersey only chose the tactics they did because of opportunism. I actually see where it can be a conundrum. Like, they had to make a choice. Do you take the subway car that that doctor, Spencer, rode in? Do you take it out of commission and thoroughly clean it, thus showing the public how serious Seriously, you're taking it, or by doing that, are you communicating something about Ebola's virulence and resistance that just isn't true? Like you can't get Ebola on the subway car. So, you know, what would you have done in that situation? Yeah, well, I, I think overall the city's handled it well, and and that, of course, the basic issue is that if your bodily fluids come in contact with a surface and. The virus can survive for a few hours on that surface, so there's a risk. But if we're talking about somebody who is not having symptoms of, and we're really talking about blood, diarrhea, you know, people mm-hmm. throwing up. I mean, that's what we're talking about with blood, bodily fluids. If you don't have that, somebody has a low-grade fever early on, you're not going to find it to be contagious. So I think the response there was quite appropriate. But the key here is if part of the drives, I think, the more draconian responses by governors or mayors when faced with it, if they know their public health department, their hospitals are unprepared, you end up having to sort of fall into this trap of being very draconian. And what's clearly so self-defeating about the border-centric pass and so forth is, at the end of the day, the way we really need to get at this problem is at its source, and that's over in West Africa, very messy neighborhood, and you've got to be able to deal with it over there. Otherwise, we're just going to keep rolling with incidences going forward. Writing in the Wall Street Journal, Brett Stevens said, the lesson is that government bureaucracy should be treated at every level as inherently and inescapably incompetent, and that expert opinion should be viewed as mistaken until proven otherwise. Meanwhile, wield a blunt instrument. Government incompetence is the obvious side of this story. He's not talking about the governors. He's talking about the federal government, what President Obama has done, what the CDC has done. Do you think so far the Ebola story is a story of government competence or incompetence? It's a story of lack of investment and commitment. You know, I think the incompetence is a canard. The reality is that in order to have public health capacity, which you typically only need when there's a real crisis like this, you have to invest in it over the long run. And we stopped doing that as a country. Not surprisingly, the people who are therefore dealing with this emergency are way overstressed and overtaxed. And, you know, the one thing that was just frustrating for me to watch this unfold relative to the center disease control getting so beat up. Yeah is that, you know, the CDC is essentially a reference librarian for states and localities. And nobody wanted to come out and say that, that essentially the job of public health has got to be done at hospitals and local and state settings. CDC can send out a few experts, but doesn't have that many. It provides, you know, extraordinary expertise, but it's not like Amazon showing up at your doorstep every time you order something online. It is a limited resource that states and uh, cities and towns are supposed to draw on, they have to have capabilities as well. And that's sort of the core I wanted to make with my piece here recently, is just to say, 
let's not lose sight of that. We have to make that investment at our own local state levels and within civil society to deal with this. It's not just a finger-pointing enterprise that's so self-destructive for us. Yeah, well, listen, I threw hypotheticals at you. I threw quotes at you. You rolled with them. You bounced back, and that's why you are the director for the Center of Resilient Studies. Thank you. Thank you. Stephen E. Flynn, former advisor to the Department of Homeland Security, professor of political science. He's written All Ebola is Local in the latest Politico. Thank you so much again. Thank you for having me. So mattresses are a relationship. I mean, you have a relationship. Hey, who you're sleeping with? No one ever says your mattress, but that's who you're sleeping with. And like a regular relationship, you don't want them too clingy, but you don't want them too standoffish. This is where the Casper mattress comes in. It provides resilience and long-lasting supportive comfort. Let's talk about price. Regular mattress, $1,500. A twin-size mattress from Casper is $500. bucks. then it basically goes $750 for a full-size, $850 for a queen, $9.50 for a king-size mattress. And the best thing about this is when you pay for that $1,500 mattress, it's because you lied on it, lay on it. I don't know what the grammar is. I know mattresses. In a showroom for like four minutes. How about you keep your mattress for four days, nay, four weeks, nay, not quite four months, but up to 100 days. So almost four months of February's. This is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It has the latex foam and the memory foam. The risk-free thing, I think, is the great part about it. Sleep on it for almost 100 days. I'm not advising you sleep on it for 100 days because then you call them up and they're like, no, we have a 100-day guarantee. At 89, you need to make your decision. But for now, why don't you decide on a Casper mattress? And if you want to decide and help the gist out by giving us credit, we'll also give you $50 towards any mattress by visiting casper.com slash the gist. That's casper.com slash the gist. And now the spiel. Thomas Friedman, New York Times columnist, mustachioed labeler of international phenomena. I like Thomas Friedman, by the way, but I'm on to Thomas Friedman. He is a master of digesting a phenomenon and trying to get you to make sense of it by applying a label. There was the Lexus and the Olive Tree. That was his book title. Totally explaining the Middle East, explains everything. All you need to know, you got a Lexus, you got an Olive Tree. The world is flat. That's what you need to know about interconnected international trade. Wrote that one to the bestseller list. There was the Golden Arches Theory of Foreign Policy. Do you know this? No two countries with a McDonald's have ever gone to war, except it's pretty much happened a lot lately. Right, NATO bombing of Syria, India Pakistan clash in Kashmir, Georgia and Russia, Crimea and Russia, Ukraine and Russia. Russia's really blowing the golden arches theory to kingdom come. But I like Friedman. I think it's easy to mock Friedman. I call it mustachioed ubiquitous foreign affairs columnist theory of blogger ire. But man, did he commit a train wreck of a metaphor with his Sunday column. What drew my eye was that it started with one train theory that I didn't buy. Here was the open. When Secretary of State John Kerry began his high-energy effort to forge an Israeli-Palestinian peace, I argued, that's Friedman speaking, or writing, I argued that it was the last train for a two-state solution. All right, I, I just disagree. I'm not sanguine here, but I don't think it was the last train. I don't think the entire peace process was all hinging on what John Kerry would do. It was just the latest foray into an American-brokered Israeli-Palestinian peace. Okay, so that was more of a quibble. But then Friedman went on to say, for Israelis and Palestinians, the next train would be one coming at them. Or, okay, 
So first, it was a train that was leaving the station. The timeliness thing. You got to do it now. That's what he was emphasizing. Then the train represented oncoming danger. So it's not exactly a mixed metaphor. I guess it was an attempt at a flourish that I probably objected to less on rhetorical grounds than on analytic ones. As I said, the failure of Kerry's efforts, I don't think were vital or even remarkable, but like an imposter in overalls, Friedman just doesn't know how to conduct himself because he says, well, now arriving on track one, That train first appeared in the Gaza War and can soon be rounding the bend in the West Bank. Wait, is this the train that's leaving the station train or the onrushing train? Is it danger train or is it got to catch that train? Because if it's scheduled to arrive on track one, it doesn't seem to be the dangerous onrushing kind of train, right? It's slowing down. It's easing into the station. Paddington Bear is ambling on board. But it's not exactly leaving the station. But Friedman just can't put the brakes on this metaphor because in the next sentence, yeah, disaster. Here we go. Rounding the bend in the West Bank. Just last week, an East Jerusalem Palestinian killed a three-month-old Israeli baby and wounded seven others when he deliberately rammed his car into a light rail station. Oh, no. Now... You're fleshing out your metaphorical point about an oncoming or possibly departing train, and you're illustrating that point with a reference to an actual collision at a light rail station, which, you know, tracks, transportation. The light rail station is pretty much like a train. The one in Jerusalem has those cables overhead, but it has tracks on the ground. It's a train. So the literal event illustrating the train collision was an actual train collision. But there was no acknowledgement of that, like the word literally, or writing something like, there was discontent in New Orleans after Katrina, the floodgates opened, as it were. Nothing like that. Just two competing train metaphors, one train literalism, one effort to get back on track, as it were, if you will. And then right after this sentence, wounded seven others when he deliberately rammed his car into a light rail station, the next sentence was, can a bigger collision be averted? A bigger collision than the actual, literal, horrific, specific attack? That specific terrorist attack? Or do you mean the bigger collision figuratively of what's going on in the Israeli-Palestinian peace process? Oh my God, this damn train metaphor keeps chugging along. Talk about a one-track mind. However, from this point in the column on, I will say the analysis is good. It is a tough topic, kind of a third rail, if you will, but the packaging is a definite train wreck. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, the Gist's producer, really hit it out of the park on her coverage of NFL football yesterday. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is doing a bang-up job, especially with his series on earplugs and noise-reducing headphones. Joel Meyer is doing well as managing producer of podcasts, but to tell you the truth, his Waterloo is a certain ABBA song. Take a chance on me. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a listen on Stitcher. If you get the Yo app and subscribe to Podcast, we'll tell you as soon as the show is ready. You get our email, which does the same thing in email form, by going to slate.com slash gist email. Our Facebook site, and I have been mentioning this a little more than I usually do because it's a point of emphasis. We invite you to come to our Facebook site, facebook.com slash slategist. I interact. I'm on there almost every day. I get into discussions. I sometimes get baited into arguments, but I really try to comport myself with dignity. So facebook.com slash slategist. Go on there and like us. 
email the gist at slate.com. I did think it was a pretty good show today, but right now at the end, I want to end with a final plea to cut out refined sugar. So let's let that be the icing on the cake. Also, the reason that I'm doing this is to help fight diabetes and let that be the cherry on top. Thanks for listening. <laughs>